0: You can take the insert from your bulletin. I have the passage for you there printed. You will notice the first passage from Micah was read this morning at the Advent uh, candle reading, so I'll hold off on reading that again. We'll go through that in a moment. I'll start by reading Luke chapter 2. I am doing a short series for Advent that uh, relates with or parallels those readings we hear when the candle is lit. And these capture biblical themes that are particular to this, kind, this time of focus, this time of focus upon God fulfilling his sending Christ to save us from our sins. We focus upon the Bible teaching that occurs uh, in these areas, and we do it during these four weeks. We do it throughout the year, but we really focus on it during this Advent season. On the other season that we focus upon something particular is in that Easter season, Uh, The death of Jesus, accomplishing our salvation. Obviously, these are things we address throughout the year as we go through Scripture, but there's a real focus now, and it's helpful. I noted for you last week something that an author, Frank Williams, wrote. He said that arguably the most compelling of evidence demonstrating that the Bible is the Word of God is its unswerving ability to accurately predict future events often in minute detail. Today we're going to look at Advent's hometown, this, pa- this place, this seemingly insignificant place called Bethlehem. Now, the Micah passage that is most associated with this prophecy was written in 700 B.C. 700 years before Christ came, the prophet Micah said the words that we heard read earlier and will hear read again. Then Luke chapter 2 records for us the fulfillment of this prophecy, written 700 years later, and that's the passage I want to begin with today as we consider Advent's hometown and its significance. Here as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks uh, for the hope, the joy, the confidence, and the guidance that your word brings us. We are amazed by your providence. We are encouraged by your sovereign faithfulness. And we are in awe of your power and your ability to move the events of history to their appointed end. Lord, grow our faith as we consider your sovereign faithfulness displayed again in Micah and in Luke and in other passages. Also, encourage our lives as we see your willingness, your, your regular Use of insignificant things, weak things, to do great things. Lord, provoke in us devotion and worship as we sit under your holy word this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Despite living in a time where secularism is growing and there is a concerted attempt, it seems, to expunge Christianity from culture or our national record, Nevertheless, the evidences for Christianity still remain strong at every turn. The impact of the one who was born 2,000 years ago in that little really village of Bethlehem uh, continues, cannot be contained, though efforts to marginalize Christ are constant. Today we consider the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and the significance of this place that God ordained for our Savior to be born. It's an event that marks all history for believers and unbelievers alike. History, it's marked very, very clearly. B.C. in A.D. B.C. is before Christ, and A.D. is Addo Domini, which means the year of our Lord. No one can escape our Lord's birth. That day in Bethlehem forever changed all of history in many ways, even the most obvious way, how we denote time. Now, for our consideration, let's consider this Bethlehem prophecy as it comes to us in Micah chapter 5. The Bethlehem prophecy, it gives us more evidence of God's sovereign faithfulness and his willingness to use seemingly insignificant things to do great works. We'll see confirmed again his sovereign hand of providence working things together to accomplish the redemption he had promised. And we'll at the same time see how he regularly uses broken, messed up, weak things to do great things. Both of these should give us great encouragement. And the general way is the people of God trusting in him. And then in particular is weak, broken people who have all sorts of flaws and wonder, can God possibly use us? Bethlehem reminds us that he can and he does. Let's look at the Bethlehem prophecy. It's there on your insert Micah chapter 5. We always start at verse 2 because that's when the prophecy begins in earnest. But verse 1 helps us understand the first context for this prophecy to come. Now, it's interesting because Micah is a prophet I've always liked. It was one of the reasons why we named our son, our youngest son, Jordan Micah. Now, interestingly, we wanted to name him Micah first But Micah Jordan sounded too much like Michael Jordan, so we went to Jordan Micah. That's how particular we were about our naming. But the prophet Micah here ministers at the same time that Isaiah does. Now, this is one of these moments where I'm really excited that we are committed to an expositional approach to to preaching. So you've been sitting under the teaching and preaching on Isaiah for a long time, and you know the context for Isaiah. Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries both around 700 BC ministering different parts of Israel uh, but nevertheless contemporaries and so this helps you understand the backdrop for this prophecy what ha- what is happening the time Micah is writing is when Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom now they're threatening to invade the south Judah Judah's capital is Jerusalem south of Jerusalem is this Bethlehem there are two Bethlehems in Israel this is Bethlehem Ephratah. It's the ancient, the more ancient of the two. It's noted as Bethlehem Ephratah, so we're sure which one he's speaking of. And you can imagine um, the importance of pinpointing this for accuracy's sake. And so you have Bethlehem south of Jerusalem. Assyria invade over the border, but they don't take Jerusalem because there's walls around it. And there is an army there. Now, it's true that the Assyrian army was greater, but they knew the history of Israel. They're not going to just plow in and try to take over. So they besieged the little towns around Jerusalem to prepare for an invasion. Now, we remember the story from Isaiah and also from the, the books of Kings, where you have God supernaturally intervening over the Assyrian army and defeating them, and they basically have to retreat, so they never get to actually invade Jerusalem. But at the time Mike is writing, they don't know this. And Bethlehem is one of those towns that was besieged and brutalized by the Assyrians for a period of weeks, if not months, while they waited for the orders to invade Jerusalem. So Bethlehem, a small little town with great ancient history, it's the birthplace of David, the king, now besieged by the Assyrians. I mean, what a disgrace. And here they were under this duress, under this occupation. And so Micah writes in chapter 5 what we read. I'll start at verse 1 and then follow when I pick up at verse 2 as you have it on the insert. Verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The governor who was there in Bethlehem, he was put down by the Assyrians, and now the Assyrians laid siege. This is where the prophecy comes. That's the context for the prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It's a beautiful picture of how prophecy works. The people of God were besieged and beleaguered and brutalized. He gives them a prophecy. It won't be finally fulfilled for centuries, but he wants them to know under their duress that God has something special for this place you occupy. It may seem like you're down and you're out now, but he will raise you up. He will raise Bethlehem up again someday when he brings from Bethlehem the ruler of Israel. What a great picture of how prophecy encourages those who, first, who hear it but also gives us a picture of what is to come. Now, Bethlehem is relatively insignificant. It's small, less than 1,000 people. It's ancient, though. It was ancient in the time of Micah. I mean, David lives in 1,000 B.C., Micah in 700 B.C., and he's referring to this place of old, at least 300-plus years old by the time of Micah. More than that, we know it was Ephratah before it was Bethlehem. And then by the time of Jesus, you have a whole... 700 more years have passed. This is an ancient town that never really grows bigger than we see it here. It's insignificant by any worldly standard. Bethlehem is mentioned in Scripture a few times. Of course, it's the birthplace of David. That's the most important aspect of its past. But before that, that's, this is the place where Jacob buried his beloved wife, Rachel, after she died giving birth to Benjamin. Uh, so there's special, uh, there's special connection there as well. It's also... Place of a terrible atrocity that happens in Judges nineteen, when a concubine is brutally murdered. There, that's another part of what Bethlehem is remembered for. Another feature of Bethlehem's past has to do with the story of Ruth and Naomi. You remember when they left from uh, they left from their foreign country to go back to Israel, and they were gleaning from the fields in order to survive. And that's where Ruth met Boaz. And that was near Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beth, house, lahem, bread. And it has to do with the fertile area around it. Uh, there was farmland around it where wheat and grapes and olives were grown. It was known for its fertility in this way called house of bread. Ezra and Nehemiah refer to Bethlehem a bit too. Ezra and Nehemiah being, being at the end of the Old Testament when the people who were in Babylon in exile were allowed to go back to Israel. There were a particular group of people pointed out by Ezra and Nehemiah from Bethlehem, and they went back to Bethlehem to rebuild that town of less than a thousand people. Verse two: But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Of course, this would be further fulfillment of the promise made through Samuel that David would have a greater son who sits on the throne. And now we learn he's coming from the actual, be born in the city that David was born in. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That's that covenantal connection through David to Christ. So Bethlehem was considered an ancient city at the time of Micah. David born there around 1000 B.C. Micah ministered there in 700 B.C. And then, by the time we come Uh, To the first century in Luke chapter 2, we have it as an ancient town with historic significance. But really no significance to the nations around. Verse 3 continues the prophecy. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I mean, the, the minutiae here that the prophet speaks of, that we learn of if it's, uh, after it's fulfilled for sure. But nevertheless, the details are incredible about what Bethlehem's significance will be. Verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is not just any king, obviously. And if you're going to predict a king, Bethlehem's not the place you're going to place him. So this is all the more bold that the prophet would speak this way. Of course, it's the spirit of God, the spirit of prophecy, speaking through Micah, this promise, so there would be clarity when the real Messiah came. There'd be no doubt. Bethlehem, of all places. We have the fulfillment then recorded In Luke chapter 2. Look there now with me. This is a familiar passage. Many aspects of it have been uh, explained over and over, and I want to focus on the Bethlehem piece and a few other items at this moment. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, the fulfillment now of Micah. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. Notice Luke's careful documentation of the places uh, the place of birth and then the details of history surrounding it. Now, about Caesar Augustus. This is Octavian. Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and really one of the most amazing of all the emperors of Rome, without question. A brilliant man uh, in total control, um, a dominating military mind, as well as uh, someone who is incredibly politically savvy. And when he took over, after Julius Caesar was killed, he had a situation where there were two other leaders, one of them being Mark Antony, who had married Cleopatra. And it was Caesar Augustus, Octavian, who fought those two other powers, defeated both of them, one at sea at the great battle against Egypt, and unified all power under himself. He was deemed a god by the people of Rome as he brought this peace, this uh, peace to Rome that had not been experienced in some time. This is Caesar Augustus. Now it's interesting that he would then implement census taking where people would have to be registered. Now, in Egypt, they would do this every 14 years. And it's believed by historians that this is what Caesar Augustus did, is he copied that method of census-taking. Now, we're not sure exactly of the date. You'll hear critics point out that this can't be right, what Luke says, because the dates aren't right. Here's the thing about the dates, and this is the challenge of it. This isn't part of inspired scripture. This is a dating system that was implemented long after uh, the time of Christ. In fact, after Constantine, when Christianity was legalized, 200 years after that, there was a, an attempt to go back and date everything. That's when the B.C. and the A.D. happened. Um, everything that was before Christ and after Christ. And there was discussion and difficulty about the particulars of those dates. We know there was a census taken uh, between 2 B.C. and 6 B.C. That's really the time frame in which Christ was born. In that time frame, when Quirinius was governor. All sorts of debate, but it's really a pretty simple explanation when you analyze how these censuses took place. Why did Caesar Augustus want to have this registration? Well, two reasons. Obvious reasons. One, as the empire grew, he wanted to know how many men of military age did he have in his empire. Because he would uh, conscript them into service. They would have to serve. Now, there was an exemption for those who lived in Judea because it was difficult enough to get the Jews to comply to anything, let alone get them to fight in Roman armies. But nevertheless, this is why he does the registration. And it's also possible that the census, though it be announced, it probably took several years to complete it. And I bet you that Judea is one of the last places that complied. Um, They didn't have an online registration that happened within 24 hours. It wasn't like a vote we have today, where within six hours you seem to know who, who won. In this time, when it's called for, it could take several years to complete the census. Um, and so there was a particular deadline that was given that was noted by Luke, and the people knew under Quirinius, it could have been Herod, someone locally was making a deadline come to bear that forced Mary and Joseph into the trip they made. But Caesar, he had it for the purpose of military men, and then he also had it for the obvious reason, taxation. Taxation. Who could I tax? I need to know how many are here, where they are, and be able to tax them. And he had a fine order of things knowing who was where. So Caesar Augustus has this registration, this census. The first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, a man who served two different terms as a governor, all went to be registered each to their own town. It's interesting what Philip Reichen says. Here is Caesar, hailed as a god, knowing nothing of what God is doing by moving him in this way. Rikens says, although Caesar would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions who had to to register was a man named Joseph with his fiancée Mary. This one little family, seemingly swept up in the tide of earthly power, gave birth to a son who would rule the world. Verse 4 in Luke chapter 2. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He had to go to his birthplace to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Most people didn't move very far from where they grew up, so this wasn't an unusual request. It was an easy way to do this registration. It was an easy way to keep track of the population over the years as well. But now he was in Nazareth. And Nazareth would be 65 to 70 miles away from Bethlehem, depending on how you uh, took the route. The trip would have taken uh, people just traveling without encumbrance for probably three or four days on foot. But Being pregnant like Mary was, it would have taken more like five to ten days even to get there. A difficult, arduous journey to go to this place, Bethlehem. And verse 6 tells us that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him, for them, in the inn. So here they are. Born in this incredibly insignificant town, born in a very humble way, you couldn't have devised a more lowly way for the king of the universe to enter this world. Utter insignificance is this place. David Gooding, in his commentary on this passage, wrote, For Augustus, the taking of censuses was one of the ways that he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But in the process, as he thought of tightening his grip on his huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born in the city of David, his royal ancestor. It's an amazing thing as you think about how God works providence. What first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power actually proved to be the supremacy of God's sovereignty fulfilling a prophecy made 700 years before. What's the significance of this Bethlehem birth? Well, the Bethlehem prophecy, it gives us more evidence, clear evidence of God's sovereign faithfulness and his willingness to use seemingly insignificant things to do great works. I want you to think about this show of his sovereign faithfulness again, how he worked this together. Think of it from another angle, an angle that's uh, popular for us to think about this time of the year. Think of the magi or the wise men. Who were these people and how did they know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem like they did? I think that this passage gives us a bit, it gives us some insight perhaps, not the whole story, but helps us to start thinking, how this may have been the case. The wise men were labeled as having been from the east. Typically, when you speak of the east to Israel at this time, they would think of Babylon. Ancient Babylon, Assyria before that, and then Babylon ultimately. And Babylon occupied a reasonable place in Israeli history because Cyrus issues a decree to let them go back to their promised land. So Babylon from the east, they were considered... Uh, Not the people of God by any means, but there was some wisdom there from these soothsayers that came from there. These stargazers who studied the stars. Those people in Babylon very well could have had Micah's prophecy. Think about it. Micah makes his prophecy in 700 BC with Assyria there. When Assyria is taken over by Babylon, Babylon then moves The exiles from Israel to their land. With them comes their sacred books and writings. I mean, Daniel's there. There are faithful Jewish people living in Babylon who have the word of God. And the Babylonians and the Persians after them, too, were noted for their looking at all the philosophies and religions of the world. They thought of themselves as enlightened. And so there were these wise men who existed who would study all these things. And somewhere in their studies, they come across prophecies about Messiah's coming and his birth in this place, Bethlehem. Certainly, they could have Micah chapter 5 at their disposal. Now, just to show it's not just a guess, in Matthew 2, another account of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the second chapter of Matthew, verse 1, listen to what it says and following. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod, the king, that puppet king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? They're aware of someone who is coming. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, these stargazers, uh, with some uh, way in which they would look at the stars to determine things. That's not so impressive because we don't know what that means exactly. We know there is a star that points out Christ's birth. But what Matthew records next is most interesting. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now Herod was not a full Jew. He was placed there by Rome. He didn't really like the Jewish people, but he wanted something to rule and Rome gave him a lot of power. He was semi-aware of the deep prophecies in the Holy Scripture of the Hebrews. When Herod the king heard this, these wise men coming to look for Messiah, he was troubled. He knew there was a prophecy of a king, which means he wasn't the king. And all Jerusalem with him. There was a certain peace about Jerusalem that would be upended if a different king was noted. In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. What is this? What do things say again? I mean, it's a 700-year-old prophecy, remember. Uh, Where where was this to be born? He's nervous now that these wise men are here. And these wise men are not just these nomadic wanderers. They clearly had means. Uh, They were people of importance. And this worried Herod, who was impressed by this. They told him, in Bethlehem, in Judea. I mean, Bethlehem of all places. Bethlehem? In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, then they say to him, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They paraphrase, essentially, Micah's prophecy in the presence of the wise men who have come here looking. Could be that back in Micah's day, 700 BC, the Babylonians eventually got that prophecy in over the centuries people who weren't even believers, took more seriously the veracity of that particular claim and that promise, and they were there to see Jesus. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. God's faithfulness... Is shown, it's on display. His sovereignty in working these things together is clear when he makes a prophecy that old and then how it comes to pass. But there's something else that I want uh, to leave you with as you consider again this regular practice of God that should encourage everyone here. It is common for him to pick that which is insignificant to work his plan of redemption to fulfillment, to bring people to Christ, to Give people what they need to know that they might come to Christ by his Spirit's work. He uses brokenness all the time for this. Bethlehem is just another example. He used this ancient old Abraham and his wife Sarai to bear the promised child who would be the beginning of the nation from which Messiah would come. Unlikely couple. Um, over a hundred when they finally bear children. Then you have those children themselves, when you think of Isaac and Jacob. Even Joseph early on, these patriarchs and all their foibles. How can God's promises come to pass using these patriarchs? Their lives are not a highlight reel of righteousness. Then, of all people to lead them out of Egypt, he picks the murdering, stuttering, stammering Moses. I know we think of Moses in heroic terms, Because of the big things he did. But the man could barely speak. He had to have his brother speak for him. This is who God uses to exact the greatest exodus ever. He uses a prostitute named Rahab to safeguard his people. He uses a little boy, a little boy named David to kill a giant in the ultimate picture of how God doesn't need anything strong to do his will. He uses a donkey. Have you thought about this one? I mean, he uses a donkey. He could have made a great horse, you know, a steed talk, or a lion. A lion would be much greater for all of our purposes. A lion talk, a mighty bear, you fill in the blanks. But a donkey, that's what God does. Hey, everyone here ought to be encouraged right now. I know I am. He used a poor couple, poor teenage couple to give birth to Jesus. He first revealed the birth of Christ to the shepherds, people who are more or less considered outcasts. In his ministry, Jesus continues this pattern over and over again. He uses this little boy with five loaves and two fishes to feed thousands. He heals a man, a poor homeless blind man, who has no rapport with anybody, no standing in culture or society, and he uses this man to say to the Jews, aren't you leaders and you don't know the truth? And he speaks the truth through this man. He uses a whole group of uneducated, bumbling, wishy-washy, cowardly, motley disciples to, as it says in the New Testament, turn the world upside down. This is a great encouragement to us as a church, that God consistently uses that which is small that which is flawed that which is broken he uses Bethlehem a place like that to do great things and the point is is us jars of clay are able to manifest the treasure inside it's it's he uses that brokenness so that no credit can be taken on our part but he would get it and it gives us this confidence This is exactly why the Apostle Paul, who had every earthly reason to brag, this is why he says to the Corinthians and to us, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows Boast in the Lord. The Bethlehem prophecy gives us more evidence of God's sovereign hand of providence, his faithfulness to fulfill his promises, and his willingness, once again, to use seemingly insignificant things to do great works. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and the testimony it bears. Thank you for the promises that you have kept and the promises that you will still keep. I ask you to prompt and provoke our devotion. Give us confidence in you and what you will do through us. Provoke our worship as we consider the testimony of your holy word again this morning. Pray this in the name of Christ, amen.